I have shared with you in the past that, not the very recent past, that we do not always handle the issue of death well here in the West for a lot of different reasons. Among the ancients, uh, there was a friendlier look at death. Among the Greeks, the god of death, Thanatos, actually was depicted as being a trap, uh, an attractive and noble-hearted young man who gently brought people into death. The Valkyries of Norse mythology were beautiful women who decide which of the Norse soldiers should die in battle and then they would be taken up uh, to Valhalla and celebrate. But something happened. And the turning point in the attitude of death, at least in the West, came in the 14th century when Europe was ravaged by the Black Plague. In some cities, as many as one in five people died from the plague. And everyone had loved ones to grieve. And it was during the plague that artists began painting a scary figure, a horrific figure. Eventually, a black-cloaked figure became the first recognizable Grim Reaper. Now it's Halloween time, and you have probably seen depictions of the great Grim Reaper in stores, in your neighbor's yard, and you may not like that, but it's, it's a reality. And by the way, this was one of the better pictures I could come up with. There were some that were far scarier than this. His dark costume and Kurt's scythe may have been inspired by plague doctors who wore dark shrouds and had a beard-like mask, the shape of the scythe, to protect themselves from breathing infected air. He was seen as the Lord of Death, a black-shrouded specter who would appear to you when your time on earth had come to an end. And people have been afraid of death ever since it. Let's face it, for modern humanity, death is greatly feared. It's not something we want to face. No one wants to see this figure coming into their hospital room. But does it have to be that way? Does death have to be about fear and loathing the very concept. In preparing for death, Warren Lamb wrote about a friend of his, a fellow minister in the church. He was a staff. He said, several years ago, I was on staff with a fellow pastor who had been suffering with diabetes and its ill effect for most of his life. He was a single dad with two sons who were the same ages as two of my boys. His name was Mike, and we were close in age. Mike had lost an eye and was now undergoing kidney dialysis once a week. That eventually became almost twice a week. After a couple of years of that, the dialysis treatments needed to be more frequent. Mike was getting pretty worn down. Dialysis is extremely hard on the whole person, and it grows harder and harder as time goes by, harder to bounce back from after each successful treatment. 
And it came a point in time that the dialysis team had to tell Mike that continuing treatment was no longer ethical. So Mike started letting the people in his life know that he had told his doctors he would not be back in for a dialysis. He had prayerfully considered everything and he decided that being lucid and dying quickly would be far better for everyone concerned than a prolonged deterioration that would be grim and painful all the way around. And here's where the hope kicks in, folks. Mike spent a lot of time with his boys, with his folks, and with his sisters and brother. He also invested a lot of time with different members of the church staff, and especially with different ones of the teens. See, Mike was also the youth pastor, and the kids loved him. When we would do lock-ins at the church for the youth, Mike would play in the all-night Monopoly marathon game. And if there was nothing else that was said about Mike right now, with this last statement, Mike was my kind of guy. Said he always used his false eye as his game piece. And the kids loved it. They thought it was wonderful that he could be so real and so accepting of his infirmities. And it was just a part of a humble and gentle spirit that made him a good pastor and a great Christian man. Mike's last two weeks on this earth taught me a lot about death and dying. How to do it. How to minister to those in the midst of it. And what a godly end to a life could look like. He spoke very clear and honest things into people's lives. And he did so with a real heart of love. And a desire for whomever he was speaking to know that as well as he knew them and as much as he loved them, the Lord knew them so much better and loved them so much more. In today's text, we're going to take a look at another death. A death of a child of God. In this text, the last days of Abraham's life were summarized before his death was announced. And from this text, like everything else we've looked at in Abraham's life, we have much to learn. So please stand as I read from Genesis 25, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites and the Letushites and the Lemumites. The sons of Midian were Ephrah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. I'm old man and full of years. And that word full can be translated satisfied in his years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons, 
Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Folks, whether we want to face it or not, there is a time to go home for the child of God. Death is inevitable. Unless Christ returns before, the word of God is very clear, all will die. So with that in mind, how can we be ready? How can we be ready to meet our end? To be able to say, as Paul did, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I've run my race. Well, when we look at Abraham's story, there are several lessons that come out. Just looking at what he did and who he was. Lessons that can help guide us. Guide us in getting ready for that inevitable day when we face the end of our own life. And so, we begin. There is a time to depart for us all. And our first lesson is that conforming to the world, well, there is a mistake. You're just going to have to listen carefully. I had two files combined. I'm not sure what happened. Life should be lived to its fullest while we're here. Life should be lived to the fullest while we are here. I'm just getting, well, it's not going backwards. Okay. What am I mean by that? In the end, Abraham remarkably carried on a life, including more children. After the death of his beloved Sarah, Abraham could have drawn into a ball and experienced that kind of grief that just, you can't do anything about. He could have wasted away. And you probably have known people who a spouse dies and within months the remaining goes on. He could have given in to that, but he didn't. He did not. Instead, he carried on. Now, if you had not read the text before, or if Natalie hadn't mentioned it, you're probably surprised that he got married again. Keturah. And I'm sure you're very surprised, well after the age of 100, he has more children. Now we really don't know anything about these men, except that one of the descendants led to the people of Arabia. Another descendant led to uh, the Midianites, who were an old enemy of Israel, as it became an, uh, a uh, people of themselves. There's an argument among some biblical scholars that he had actually married Keturah before Sarah died. But verse 1 suggests she came afterwards. She gave a birth to six sons. Now, again, we know very little about them. 
But an interesting thing, do you remember the promise to God with Abraham? If you trust me, you go where I want you to go. You do as I want you to do. You are going to be the father of what? Many nations. Not just Ishmael and Isaac. He was going to be the father of many. And Keturah's sons make that possible. Alan Ross points out that is a promise. Now, when I look at that, when I see Abraham's response to the loss of his loved one, his response was powerful, and it gives us an insight. Folks, while we are breathing, there's always more to be done. We haven't done this in a long time. So I'm going to ask you right now, take your pulse. Just slip your fingers up on your neck and take your pulse. Is it beating? If it's not, please let us know so we can get help. If it's beating, you're alive. And if you're alive, you have purpose and you have possibilities within your life. Now, some of you may be at a place in your life, but you're thinking, Danny, there's nothing I can do. My health isn't good. All these things that are happening. But folks, we can have impact even toward the end. Some of you remember Floyd Winters. Floyd and Ruby. uh, I just love them to death. Both of them about this high. And... uh, Ruby had been very sick, was dealing with some dementia issues. They went to live with their daughter over in Alabama for a while. And then Ruby passed away and Floyd came back home to the home that he and Ruby bought when they first got married 60, about 65 years earlier. And I got to spend a lot of time with Floyd those last couple of years of his life. We bonded because of the loss of both of our lives our wives, and and Floyd would constantly say, I just don't know why God's left me here. And he would go down the list of all his family members and his friends, his lifelong friends who had died, and he just says, I'm ready to go home. Maybe God can take me away. Why doesn't he take me away, Danny? And and I would respond sometimes, well, maybe, so I could know somebody who's a hundred years old. Uh, but what I was able to tell him The bond we share in our loss has made my time with you extremely special. And you have strengthened me, and I've tried to offer strength to you. And he touched my life. I learned more about World War II with him uh, than I did in some of my history classes. And if you're interested in one of them, a story I didn't even know was in... I don't think it's in the history books. I'd be happy to share with you later. But he touched my life in a very powerful way. Maybe you have a sense. There's not much left for me to do. But there are some of you in this congregation, you're my prayer warriors. You're the ones I count on. I trust that I know you're praying for me whether you tell me or not. Maybe you have a sense that your life does have meaning. You have a sense that there is something for me to do. And it you do. You have meaning praying for one another. Uh, We're living in an interesting age where people want to talk about spirituality and not really faith in God. 
And there are times uh, I have gotten one too many. I'm sending out kind thoughts into the universe for you. Folks, the universe doesn't count, care about me. Pray for me. And it'll be remarkable if you keep your eyes open, those opportunities to pray for people you love and even people you barely know. You can be the one who speaks the love of God to those around you. Your family. Even if they don't want to hear, you can do little bits of God loves you. Your friends. Your neighbors. Perhaps after a period of continuing being faithful and praying for them and sharing with you can, you might even be one who leads them into a, a faith in the God you serve. George Mueller prayed for two of his friends for over 60 years. One of them got saved the year before he died. One of them got saved the year after. He never gave up living his life for God. Maybe, the truth is, there may be someone here today, you've never really made the chief preparation for departure. You have never confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. You've never surrendered your life into his hands. Oh, you've known about Jesus and you've thought about him and you come to church, but there's never really a point when you said, Christ, I'm giving my life over into your hand. I, I want you and what you did for me on Calvary to become real. Well, if that describes you, today could be the day you enter the kingdom. Today could be the day you finally stop fighting his call in your life. Today could be the day of new beginning. And so, give your days to the Lord with a willingness to be used in whatever way he can. That's getting ready for the end. Right now, Lord, I want my life to mean something for your kingdom. And so, we should embrace the days God gives us as wonderful gifts of his grace. I hope you realize that every day you wake up, you've been given a gift. Now, there are probably some days that you would kind of like to just return the gift and go on and be with the Lord. I, probably most of us at some time or other have called, Eli, prayed Elijah's prayer, Lord, just take me home now. But it's a gift full of possibility, a gift full of amazing things that could happen. Every day is another day to discover more about the God we serve. Filling us with wonder about the God who is higher than we are and yet the God who walks with us. Every day lived is another day that we can touch lives for Christ. But folks, this is not the only preparation. Living life to the fullest is not the end of the matter because there's a second lesson that Abraham teaches us today. Preparation for the inevitable should be made while living. Preparation for the inevitable. Knowing that it's coming, we should be doing, getting ourselves ready. Again, looking at Abraham. We are told that while Isaac gets the inheritance... Abraham did something special. 
Abraham provided gifts of love for Ishmael and his other sons while he was still alive. Now, verse 8 tells us, we are told that, that he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. Uh, that's the only place in scripture that Hagar is called a concubine. But what that means is, it's not denying that they're a wife. Please notice, verse 1 of our text says, Abraham took a wife. What it is saying, that in a polygamous life, and there was nothing, the law didn't exist to tell Abraham that's the way it should be done. There was the wife, and there were secondary wives. So even though they didn't have the authority, even though they didn't have the cloud of Sarah, they still gave Abraham sons. And so he gives them gifts while he's living. Did you catch that? that important? While he was living, he did something he needed to do. Why? Because I believe Abraham loved his sons. I believe he loved Ishmael. I believe he loved all six of Keturah. And he wanted them to understand this gift that I don't have to give you. Because folks, he didn't. In the culture of the day, he didn't have to give them anything. But he said, I want you to know that I love. Abraham had a lot of reasons he could have shrunk down into the pit of regret. But at the end of his life, he worked graciously to make sure that his other sons understood that he had not forgotten them. Yes, there were tough decisions that had to be made. But they would always have a part of Abraham's heart. And he wanted them to know that by providing them for enough to begin their lives. In meaningful fashion. Folks. When I look at Abraham. And see how he's handling. Then I'm reminded of something. Very important for us to understand. We are each tasked. With trying. To so order our lives. That regret. Does not rule our hearts. We are each tasked with trying to so order our lives that we are not filled with regret. This is why in Paul's writings you constantly find him telling Christians you need to put the old way behind you. You need to put the life you live without Christ behind you. And you need to start living as his child. You need to develop and let the fruit of the Spirit fill your life. You need to work on love and patience and compassion and all of those things because you're a new creature and you don't want to be weighted down with the I should have listened. In his sermon, Decisions and Regrets, Joseph Magaha said, John Greenleaf Whittier, one of our most astute poets, wrote, and folks, this is a beautiful statement. For all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. 
The toughest funerals I do are funerals that are tinged with regret. When children are standing at the casket of one of their parents and you can see the sobs and you can hear, if only, if only we had reconciled, if only we had reached out to each other. Regret is a terrible master. Agaha said that is what regret is all about. The world is full of people who regret having thoughtlessly chosen the wrong path. Life is a series of forks in the road. It is a series of decisions, some more important than others, but the choices are up to us and the consequences of those choices belong to us also. Now many of us here, if not most of us here, are old enough that we do have regrets. We look back and you know, we, we made some bad decisions along the way. And sometimes we remember those decisions and we beat ourselves up all over again. And we go to God and say, God, forgive me. And God says, I don't know what you're talking about. I've already forgiven you and forgotten it, but we are battling with it. So we need to remember the gracious, forgiving love of God. And we should let that grace spur us on toward living lives ahead by being more firmly committed to his way. God, I can't do anything about the past and what is behind me. But by your grace and strength, let this day be a new day for me. And let me learn what it means daily to give my life to you, that I will become the person you created me and redeemed me to be. And so, we should focus our hearts on leaving a heritage of love that will remain long after we're gone. Let Christ's love shine through your life. Let it just pour out of you to the people you see around you, the people who are hurting, the people in pain. Let them see that there is someone who loves them. And they may not understand why, and they may ask why, and then you have an open door. Christ loves you. And I do too. Let the love you carry for others be seen, experienced, and known. I had a friend in high school. He was actually a couple of grades below me, but he was coming as a member of my church, and he was part of a a prayer thing that we would do together, a group of us, sometimes all over different churches in town. And one night after that, uh, Lanny, Mike, and I, three friends, got in my car and we were driving Lanny home. And this 16-year-old boy began crying. Now, in Northeast Texas, if you're a boy 16 years old and crying there better be a bone showing. This was considered incredibly unmanly in the 70s. But he was sobbing deep sobs. And when we asked what he told us, what was going on, he told us that in the 16 years of his life, his father had never said, I love you, son. Had never told him. Now, Daddy was one of those old school guys. I feed him. I clothe him. I put 
a roof over his head. Of course I love him. But folks, an institution can feed, clothe, and put a roof over your head. This young man needed to hear his father say, I love you. Don't let that be your story. Tell people. Let them know. Shower the love that can be theirs. Because we don't want a life of regret. We want to leave a heritage of love behind us. Preparing those who are going to come and step up and take our place in this world, let's give them something to hold on to, to build with. Let's prepare while we're alive. And then there's one last lesson that I've learned from Abraham. Embracing the hope that God gives can prepare us For our day of departure. Embracing hope. I titled our response reading on death and dying. And I thought just simply letting you see the verses. But I decided you know what. I want them to understand. This is death and dying. The way the children of God can understand it. Yes, we're going to die. And it is painful to think about. But I want you again to look at Abraham. Abraham's hope carried him through to the very end. To the very end of his life. It can actually be seen in his preparation to pass the torch to his son, Isaac. We are told that Abraham made sure that Isaac would receive all that he would need to become the new patriarch. Think about it this way. Abraham is now signing over the deed that God has given him to Canaan to his son Isaac. Isaac's going to be the new head of the family and his descendants are going to pile up and bring more and more to, the, to be Abraham's descendants. And the people of Israel are going to be born. And now it, it's your right, Isaac. It's your place. But Abraham did one more thing to assure Isaac's role as the new leader of God's covenant. And this again is where sometimes we have a difficulty of really seeing, I think, what God wants us to see. As much as Abraham loved his sons, Alan Ross points out, they and their descendants may possibly have posed a threat to Isaac. So Abraham sent them away as he had done with Ishmael. He sent them to the east. And it wasn't that he didn't love them, but he knew the problems that they could cause for his son. And indeed, centuries later, when the people of Israel come into the land of Canaan, some of the descendants of those sons became some of the real enemies of Israel as they came into the Holy Land. 
So Abraham knew, I just can't give Isaac a lot of wealth. I need to help help him be secure. There are not going to be any dynasty overthrows. There are not going to be any political intrigues about taking away the lead of the family. He trusted and he believed. And then we have that great expression. He was all a man of good old age, full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Verse 8 says that. And folks, in Israel and among much of the East, the idea of a good old age was a sign that God blessed you. That God had somehow blessed you because you've lived longer than you really were supposed to live. Now that's not always an accurate sign you should assume. I've known people who've been interviewed past their hundreds, and they I've had heard them say, well, how'd you get so old? And I said, my love for Jesus, he's just blessed me all the way. But I've also heard people say, well, how do you get to be so old? Smoke 10 packs a day and drink a bottle of whiskey whenever I wanted, and I just lived a wild life. So don't assume because somebody's old that they're necessarily tight with God. But in the scripture, there is an indication that Abraham was Ultimately, with all of the failures, with all of the mistakes, Abraham still remained God's man and still had faith. And that faith was the overarching statement. He was called the friend of God. Not perfect, but seeking to follow God. Now, for that phrase, gathered to his people, normally that refers... You're buried in the family plot. But something more is happening here. Abraham is buried in Machpelah with Sarah. He's not taken back home to Haran and the family plot. Obviously, his bones were not entoured with his family back home. So what does it mean? Clive Francisco suggests that the phrase applies to the existence of Sheol. It is a concept you will find in several places in the scripture. You'll find it in the book of Psalms and so forth. And the concept of Sheol was, it was not quite the idea of heaven. They did not have a very strong sense of going into the glorious presence of God. But it was an idea that life goes on We really don't know anything about it. It's kind of shadowy. We're not sure how it's going to play out. But but life somehow goes on. And there are a few high water marks in the Old Testament where people seem to have a greater understanding. Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him in my flesh after he's died. I think Abraham was one of those who had a hope for even more than a shadowy existence. Why do I say that? 
Let me read for you Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, when Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 10. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham never got the full inheritance. In this life, he didn't get to see the promise completely fulfilled, but he kept believing, God has something better for me. And I think he had hope to see that city with foundations. So he faced life and death with hope. And an amazing moment, this Again, if you read quickly, you just lose. There, there's a beautiful moment here. An extremely beautiful moment. Who buried Abraham? Did you catch that? Ishmael and Isaac. Brothers who didn't really get along that well in life. But for one moment. They set aside whatever differences they had. For one moment they came together because they both loved Abraham. And they wanted to honor the man who had brought them into the world. Together they did. And I want to believe that that connection sustained them even though they were far apart. That maybe, just maybe there was still a new tinge of love that had long been lost in their lives. Folks, I look at Abraham who trusted, who believed, who was ready to say, I'm going to follow you, and I don't know exactly where you're going, but I know and I believe in the end, it's going to be something magnificent. Well, you and I, we have a promise of life eternal that can give us hope, In the very face of death. We have a promise of life eternal that gives hope. Now, I've heard people say, rather dogmatically, Christians are not afraid to die. I beg to differ with that a little bit. Because very often the truth is, we can face uncertainty. And it may not even be the idea of what's going to be after this death. It may be things like, How will we die? Will it be a horrible, wretched thing? Will I fall asleep gently and wake up in heaven? Will it be painful? Will we become a burden to those we love? And all of those things can stir up uncertainty. They can all stir up a disquiet within us. But even in the face of such uncertainty, we are given hope. Hope that can hold us. Hope that can help us to face that inevitable. Hope that can help us shine the light of Christ. I've shared with you a few years back, Donald Potts, one of my favorite professors, both in college and seminary, 
shared with us one day in class. And Potts was always a very professional kind of professor, but that day he wept. He said that his wife had breast cancer, and it was serious, and and they had to remove a breast, and uh, it may already be too late. They called up all the people, all the different churches he had served through the years, and everybody prayed. And so the last exam before surgery was scheduled, they take a look, and the doctors come into the room having looked at the exam and said, we can't explain this. There is no sign of cancer. It's gone. They said, the doctors use the word miracle. About six months later, her father was discovered to have cancer. And he was not healed. The same people were called up, the same people were prayed, praying, and but he was not healed. And he spent, because this was that day in time, it was long before hospice, long before all the things we can do nowadays. And he spent the last few months in his, of his life in a hospital, being kept out of pain. And this is where Dr. Potts would tear up. He said, no matter how many times we've ever told the story of my wife's miracle, to the best of our knowledge, not one person ever became a Christian because of my wife's healing. And then he said, But through my father-in-law's crucible of suffering, 20 people came to faith in Christ. Staff at the hospital. Visitors. And he was asked about it. What's happening here? And he told Dr. Potts, People come in and they'll ask me, you know you're dying, right? Yeah. And you know there's nothing that can happen to save you, right? Yes. Then why do you have peace? And he will respond, let me tell you about my Jesus, who is my peace. Folks, we have a promise. The Lord Jesus Christ, John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Promise of hope. A hope that we can build our lives on. I have plans for the next coming week. And I have no control over what's going to happen in that week. And that's the reality of life. But we have hope that whatever happens, Christ will not abandon me. He will not desert me. He will not leave me alone. He is with me. In Christ, we have eternal life right here, right now. 
Your eternal life began the day you confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord. Now, the complete fulfillment of that is out there still. But, folks, we need to understand something. We need to let our, us live our lives in the hope so that we always remember this world is not our home. That hope that I have in Jesus, I need to remember it every day of my life. I need to remember I'm passing through. I'm an alien. My citizenship is in heaven. And I need to remember that my ultimate home is glory to be with my Father throughout all eternity. And if I can remember that, and I begin to live that, then maybe the time will come when I will say with the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I'm ready to go. Whether it's tomorrow or 20 years from now, live my life ready to go. So ahead of everyone in here lies the inevitable. We don't know when and we don't know how. But we do know that we can be getting ready Right now for that day. We do so by living life to its fullest. Understanding that every day God gives us is a gift that we should celebrate and use to his glory. Someone has said there's only one way to get ready for immortality. And that is to love this life and live as bravely and faithfully and as cheerfully as we can. Let's live it to the full. We do so by making preparations now in the time of living. Doing the task God gives us. And I fight procrastination. It's in my blood. I had a church member call me up one day in Texas and said, Brother Danny, I have a, I have a calendar with all of the strange holidays throughout the year. And I wanted to let you know today is National Pro- uh, Procrastinators Day. And I said, thank you very much, Charlotte. I'll celebrate tomorrow. Okay, how about we start living our lives today? I want to do what God is calling me to do today. Then we do so by holding on to the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. So the question comes down to this. Are you ready? Commit yourself into the hands of a gracious and forgiving God. Do the things that need to be done now. Learn the hope that can be yours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Be ready. When Paul tells us, I'm ready to be poured out, let that be your word. 
Let that be your heart. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And there's a crown waiting. Let that be your confession. I want to honor my Christ. And when your time to part comes, you will be ready.